0: Take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 as we continue right on into the practicality aspects of the book of Romans. We have moved through several months uh, right at a year of doctrine uh, in the book. And that has brought Paul to the place of doxology last week. The place where he gave glory to God. And as we move into this morning's message, we recognize that that's not only going to be reflected in our worship, but it is also going to be reflected in the way that we conduct ourselves on a day-to-day basis. If the theology of chapters 1 through 11 is accurate, and it is, that's not really a question, it is accurate, then we should understand that this is going to change our life forever. And it's going to change the way we live Forever. And really, we have a question that is before us today. And the question before us is, will you decide to live a life of genuine faith? Will you decide to live a life of genuine faith? See, the reality is that you can go to church. In fact, millions in our country are doing so this morning. And yet, there's no genuine faith. There's no genuine lifestyle change. They go to church. They sing Songs, some of them good, some of them not so good. They take a few moments out of their day to say, yes, I worship God. They put it in a compartment. They shove it to the side and say, now I'm good for another month or two. Maybe another week if they're really religious. You see, the situation is that Paul doesn't ask us to practice looking like a Christian. He, pra- he asks us to be living sacrifices. What does that mean? How does this apply to us today? There is truly a difference between a false practice and a genuine practice. And that's what we're going to see this morning. And before we can do that, we need to understand this central idea. It is only by the mercies of God that we are able to live godly lives in a world of sinful devastation. You see, the reality is that those who live the way they want to live, those who practice a false Christianity, are those who... Go to church, they live the way they wanna, they live the way Christians expect them to live on Sunday, and then as soon as church is over, everything changes for them. You see, because church is where they go, not who they are. Paul is asking it, that it be who we are. And so our lifestyle, our actions, our attitudes will all be different when we understand what it means to be a living sacrifice. Now this is a passage we are familiar with, one in which I have preached on a couple times. Lauren has taught it in Sunday school, and so uh, we have seen this passage many times. But I'm going to take just a little different look at it this morning because we are going to come at it from an understanding that the mercies of God that have been seen in the first chapters of the book of, Revel- of Romans are going to cause us to do something different. And so we're going to come at it from just a little bit different angle, having all of the theology backing it up, having all of the doxology of Paul backing it up. And so we're going to look at three aspects here in a moment, but as we prepare to do so, we need to prepare our hearts. And so I'm going to read Romans chapter one, or chapter 12, verses one and two, and then we're going to ask the Lord's blessing on His word immediately thereafter. It says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is. That which is good, and acceptable, and perfect. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege it is to be students of it today. Having understood 11 chapters of doctrine. We now come to the place where we are ready to put it into practice. We we'll challenge our hearts today in those areas where we are not holy and acceptable to you. Lord, challenge us to live lives outside of the doors of this building that are living sacrifices, pleasing to you. Lord, I pray that as we move through this passage today, even though it's just dealing with two verses, that we would be fundamentally changed having now an application to the theology in which we have learned. May we recognize that everything that was done to accomplish our salvation, to keep the promise of the new covenant to those who are not Jews, and to keep the promises of all of the covenants that to the Jews, should cause us to respond. Help us to be different this morning. Put aside whatever encumbrances we have brought in with us, laying those aside and looking forward to the truth of your word and the application thereof. Lord, I pray that you'd give me the words to speak, that your name would be exalted above all names, and that we would join with Paul in the doxology, bowing the knee and worship you and exalting you, giving you the glory that is rightfully yours, that we merely have the privilege of passing on. Lord, we give you the glory and the honor now. In your son's name we pray. Amen. We have... Three aspects that we're going to consider this morning. The first is that we are to respond to the mercies of God. Paul brings us up to this point, and instead of saying, and now, or, and let's look at, he says, therefore. In other words, let's go all the way back, and he's bringing us all the way back to chapter one, moving through to chapter 11, revealing all of the mercies of God, and we're going to understand the difference between mercy and grace by the time we are done this morning. There is a distinction. They are similar, but they are different. So we should respond to the mercies of God. And this response should cause us to do two things. First, present yourself acceptable to God. And finally, prove the will of God. You see, part of all three of these points have come out of this passage. And I want you to recognize something. It is of God, it is to God, and it is of God. Those are directly out of the passage because we should understand that our actions and our services to the Lord should be done in light of the Lord. And that's what Paul is reminding us of, and he's causing us to respond first to the mercies of God in verse verse 1. Scripture there says again, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. As we begin to respond to the mercies of God, I want you to, capture the urgency of Paul's request because he is he is asking that we respond in an urgent manner with obedience we should understand the truth of the first 11 chapters and in light of that immediately begin to practice in obedience a faithfulness to the Lord and Paul moves from the doxology of chapter doxology of chapter 11 right into chapter 12 not even missing a beat But when we look at the book in general, we see a major shift in emphasis. In fact, chapter 12 begins a whole new portion of the book of Romans. And yet Paul doesn't. Paul reveals to us, he says, okay, therefore, since this is true, this is what you do about it. And he gets right to the heart of it and he presents some urgency. The emphasis now shifts from theology to the practicality of living it out. And this is the reality. I want to review for you the first few chapters. first 11 chapters, really. You and I started out as sinners in desperate need of Christ. By the time we get into chapter 3, we we begin to understand God's plan for that all along has been to justify you, which has led into our sanctification, which then leads us into our uh, glorification and the security of our salvation in chapters 9 through 11 because of the promises made to Israel. We recognize that the Lord is faithful to rebellious Israel and should cause you to glorify God. And then it should motivate you then to respond in obedience. You see, that's the book of Romans up to this point. Justification, sanctification, glorification. God is going to preserve and protect your salvation because of the promises made to Israel is our example. And if that doesn't cause you to understand the work that it took for your salvation, then nothing will. The word for urge has been called one of the most tender expressions in Scripture. Urge. And Paul is urging us. He says, therefore, brethren, I urge you by the mercies of God. What does this mean then? What is, What is Paul saying? You see, the word urge is uh, somewhere between a command and pleading. So Paul gives us the command to live righteous lives in chapter 6. He tells us that we should be different. But here, he's not quite pleading, but he softened it. It's much more tender. He's saying, therefore, brother, and I urge you, because of this truth, should it not change something in you? Should it not change the way you look at the world around you? Paul has already commanded the action of obedience. You see, you cannot say that we are required to be living sacrifices. Paul does not make that statement. He says we ought to be living sacrifices. But he commands us to be righteous. But he does not command us to be living sacrifices. What he is doing is he is saying, let's take this next step as believers. Your life has been fundamentally transformed by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And if you understand the weight of that, yes, it was a free gift to you, but if you understand the weight of that, then you cannot help yourself but to be a living sacrifice. Paul is pleading, not quite pleading, not commanding, but urging. He desires that you and I obey by our own choice, by our own decision, which comes from a faithful understanding of the theology of this book. You see, the reality is one can sing of the grace and the mercy of God. One can experience the grace and the mercy of God. But it is not those actions which promote real worship. That is not what drove Paul to his knees in the end of chapter 11. And it is not that which promotes faithful obedience. The reality is experience and music are twisted in this sinful world and are easy tools of deception by Satan. So, for the life of the believer, you say, What is it that motivates my action, regardless of what the world looks like? You know what Job's answer to that was? The theology of God. God came to Job and said, Were you there when I made the foundations of the earth? Were you there? You see, the reality is, and that's where Paul led us to last week, the reality is, it is not because of your experience, it is not because of music, it is not because of a good feeling when you come to church. The reality is, it's the doctrine of the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans that should drive you to your knees in worship in the Lord. And it should drive you to an understanding that you should give glory to Him because of what was accomplished for you and for me. Paul is seeking your willful response in light of the enduring and the inerrant Word of God. That is where our power is found. And it is made to bear on your sinful lost soul to bring life and life everlasting. And this was all made available to us by God's mercy. Paul, Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, Paul has just spent a a ridiculous amount of time in some opinions in chapter 11 on humility in the Gentiles' life, not being arrogant, not being conceited. We understood these for several weeks in Romans chapter 11. But he comes right back to the truth. The reality is that what we are about to be asked to do is not based on the changing winds of society or the sinful expectations of the world around us. Paul seeks real change of heart because of and only through God's mercy. You can't change. You can't be arrogant in your faith when you understand that it was all a gift of God's mercy. So Paul seeks real change of heart because of God's mercy. Mercy expresses deliverance from condemnation that we deserve. Grace reflects the blessings that we do not deserve. Mercy expresses the deliverance from condemnation that we do deserve. When Paul says, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, he is saying, brethren, you deserve nothing but judgment and destruction. And yet by the mercies of God, you are able to be living sacrifices. In the heart and the life of the believer, this means that we understand that all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. This means we understand that the wages of sin is death. But on this side of the theology, we also understand what it costs to offer to you and I the mercy of God contained in the last part of the last verse. But the gift of God, of the last verse that I just quoted to you, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you misunderstand the mercy that is demonstrated in that verse, then you will misunderstand living sacrifices. Let me do it again for you. In the heart and the life of the believer, this means that we understand that all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. Verse we all should have learned a long, long time ago. It's an Awana verse. Our Awana kids can all quote it. This means that we understand then another Awana verse. For the wages of sin is death. That means you and I have all fallen. We've all sinned. We all deserve death. And that is where we were destined to be, except, except the gift of God, his eternal life. See, the reality is we were nothing. We deserved nothing but judgment. And then, the mercy of God. If you fail to understand the theology, you will fail to present yourself as a living sacrifice. It may look good on Sunday morning, but it's going to look lousy on Wednesday morning. And it's going to look worse on Thursday. And it might be worse yet on Monday. You see, the reality is this should change the way we live. And the way we act. And the way we function. It is not about experience. It is not about music that moves you. It is about uh, a change of mind. While those other things assist in it, and they are vitally important, that is not what Paul is saying. It is brought about by the power of the Word of God, being faithful to understand the theology of the Word of God. That is what causes Paul to bow the knee. And you look through history, and you see those godly men of history who have bowed the knee and worshipped the Lord and were used for fundamental transformation in their society. Do you know what it started with? Theology. Theology. An understanding of what God did for us and who God is. And that is why Paul starts with theology. And he brings us to this point. And he says, therefore, brethren, I urge you, by the mercies of God, to present yourself a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. You see... In order to present yourself acceptable to God, first you must offer yourself as a sacrifice. This is not required in the Christian walk. This is not required. Paul is adding to, uh, in fact, I, I used, we were talking about something totally different, but I used this term, do you want to maximize your relationship in the youth group this past week? Well, as a Christian, do you want to maximize your relationship in the Lord? Yes or no? Tune me out if you don't want to. Listen intently if you do want to maximize your relationship. If you want to maximize your relationship with the Lord, then this is what you will do. Offer yourselves as a sacrifice. The response that Paul is urging from us in light of the first 11 chapters is that we present our bodies willingly. This isn't required of us that we do this willingly. The word present is a Levitical word. Used when a priest would bring in the sacrificial offering. And he would uh, bring them in and he would point them to the most holy of holies. And there he would offer the sacrifice. That is the word present. That is all that Paul wants us to understand. But unlike the lamb that was going to be sacrificed and losing its life, you and I are to stand before the most holy of holies as a living and holy sacrifice. Now living, we understand, living is that which is the constant action, thoughts, process, words, everything we do in this life is a sacrifice to the Lord. But there's a qualifier. Not only is this sacrifice living, it is holy. So what does holy mean? All holy means is set apart. Use the illustration. This cup of water is holy water. Do you know that? If I splashed it on you, it wouldn't do anything though. All it means is that it is set apart. This is my cup of water. It's set apart to me. Question is, as a believer, are you set apart to the Lord? When you are brought in and presented to the most holy of holies, you are living all of us are, right? A few of you are in between. <laughs> but all of us are living. We are all living sacrifices. The question is, are you a holy sacrifice? Set apart, distinct, for the purposes of God. Or do you have your own agenda? If you have your own agenda, you are not a holy living sacrifice. You are a living sacrifice, but you are not holy. Therefore, you are not acceptable. As such. We will get to that in just a moment. When we present our bodies before the Lord, we unlike the Old Testament offerings, and that we are we are rather unlike the Old Testament offerings, in that we are still alive. But like the Old Testament, Testament offerings, we are set apart to the service of the Lord. When you offer your body as a living sacrifice to the Most Holy, then what you are saying is, Lord, I am yours. Use me, mold me, shape me. I am set apart for your purposes. We need to separate our lives from sin, from this evil world, to our God. This is the essence of holiness. When Paul says bodies, he means everything. Not just the outer shell, but the inner as well. We recognize that at this point, if you have come to know Christ as Savior, just by accepting Him, just by believing in His name, then you are saved. The question is, do you want to maximize your relationship with the Lord? On this earth, do you want to get out of your relationship with the Lord everything possible? If yes, then you will offer yourselves as a sacrifice. And if yes, you will understand how to be acceptable. You see, it is not on your terms that you can offer yourself as a living sacrifice. Because remember who we are. Except by the mercy of God, we are sinners destined to hell. There is nothing that we do that is righteous. And yet, because of the mercies of God, we have security in Christ. We understand that we are eternal, going to live eternally with Him in heaven. But, what about the rewards aspect? What about the promise that if you live for Christ and you follow in Paul's footsteps, that there's a crown of life waiting for you and a crown of righteousness? And other crowns as rewards. You see, we must understand how to be acceptable. To offer our bodies as living sacrifices is not to be done by your definition. Say, well, I think I've done enough good things. I've given money to the church. I've, I've attended church faithfully. I've ministered. I've used my gifts in the church. I, I've done all of these things. I've done what God commands of me. Maybe. But that doesn't mean that you are a living sacrifice. Paul tells us that you and I cannot dictate what is acceptable. And you want biblical proof of that? Look at Cain. He brought an offering to the Lord. From an ungodly person's perspective, he's saying, what was Cain's problem? Why did God accept Abel and not Cain? Cain brought an offering. But it was on his terms, not God's. You can offer something, but if it is not on God's terms, it does not matter. So, as we understand this reality, we must understand likewise that we cannot offer a set of demands to be met. You cannot dictate what is acceptable, and you cannot offer a set of demands. Say, these are the things I'm going to meet. But rather, the sacrifice brought in the Old Testament came so, came as that sacrifice willingly. And then it was not on their terms that they offered their lives. Are you offering your life as a living sacrifice, but you're reserving a part of it? Saying, Lord, I'm willing to give you my life on Sunday, uh, 6 o'clock on Fridays, 2.30 on Mondays. Are you doing that in your life? Maybe not that blatantly, but you're setting apart times in your life where you're saying, that's God's; the rest is mine. Or this action is God's, the rest is mine. Or this attitude is God's, the rest is mine. If you're doing that, you're not offering yourselves as a living sacrifice. The sacrifices that died didn't do that. You can't either. So if we are to respond to the mercy of God, which we do not deserve, then we are to do so on the terms of the living, powerful God. Therefore, we are to be set apart from sin. Set apart from the lifestyles and the practices of the sinful world around us. Now... You and I should understand the magnitude of this action. And it should not be lost on us. This means that we are living in light of eternity. While we are living in a temporal world. Because we are still sinners. This is going to be a constant and continuing struggle. And one we must continually commit to even after failure. Because you will fail. I know a preacher supposed to give you all mushy words. If you haven't figured out by now, I don't do that. We must continually commit, even after failure. Because you're going to fail. You're going to fall. And it is what you do then to present yourselves as a living sacrifice. Sometimes this may have to be done daily. Sometimes this may have to be done hourly. Sometimes this may be a minute-by-minute decision that you make. But we should be living sacrifices. We need to understand That if we want our service to be found as well pleasing to the Lord, then it will be found in faithful service to Him on His demands, on His terms, not ours. And again, we need to be aware that this has nothing to do with our salvation. We cannot work for it, nor can we be found faithful in service to the Lord before we come to know Christ as Savior. When we have believed and then by grace have received salvation, Paul is clear that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. This then is in response to the mercy that was demonstrated to us because of our salvation. It does not guarantee our salvation. It cannot. Christ does that. It does not give us a higher standing. It cannot. It just maximizes our relationship. But it is a response of gratitude to the Lord for the salvation of our souls. It is giving Him glory and more than our words and our time on Sunday morning. And Paul says, this is reasonable. This is reasonable. Some translations, the NASB says that this is your spiritual service of worship. The word reasonable, though, is more accurate. This is your reasonable service of worship. What Paul is saying is that your spiritual service of worship should not be and cannot be on your terms if you understand mercy. This means that what is being asked of you and I is completely within reason. Commentator Tom Constable writes, There are many ways in which we can worship God, but this is the most fundamental and important way. This service of worship should precede all other services of worship, or else worship and service are superficial. Pretty strong language. question is, is your worship superficial? That's what I want to get down to the heart, the root of today. Because Paul is calling for everything but superficial worship. Unless you are setting yourself apart from the world as a believer, your worship is superficial on one level or another. I see it as a primary responsibility of any great preacher of the Word of God. And by the way, I'm not claiming that for myself. But I see that it is the responsibility of any great preacher of the Word of God to lead his fellowship in true worship of our great God. To remove superficiality. To remove those things that hinder our worship. The only way that this is possible is in the power of the word of God. Wherein there is no, nothing superficial. So, Paul says, present yourselves acceptable to God. Then he moves on to verse 2. Verse 2 says this, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is. That which is the good and acceptable and perfect. Paul tells us what to do, verse 1. He tells us now how to do it in verse 2. He's giving us an indication of what we must now do. First, we must avoid worldliness. Avoid worldliness. Paul gets even more to the point as we move into this verse. How are we supposed to be living sacrifices, holy, acceptable to God, in this world of sinful rebellion against God? The first step in the holy aspect is to avoid conformity to the world. We should realize that this is a reasonable step. The people of God should be noticeably and remarkably different from the world around us. And if you are, if you are, it's going to cost you. If you are noticeably different, you will be mocked. You'll be ridiculed. Just as that strange child was in third grade. Because you are odd. You see, we don't conform to the world, though, as Christians. If we are faithful in understanding the work and the security that is provided for us, as well as God's overall plan throughout history, which was reviewed for us in chapters 9 through 11, our lives will be radically different. And if they are not, you need to go back and spend some time in Romans chapters 1 through 11. You see, you must be different. The world's ways, the world's thinking, their practices are foolishness to God. And it should be foolishness to God's people as well. Avoid worldliness. Transform your thinking. Transform your thinking. You see, your conformity with the world will remain unless you change your thinking from the previous carnal worldview of your sinful condition to the worldview of God's Word. We have spent an extensive amount of time in the last three chapters to come to understand that God is in control of all things. From eternity past to eternity future, nothing has thwarted the plans of God. If God is in control, and He is, then shouldn't we start living as if He is? This was what Christ was telling the people in Israel. Is, Do not worry. Why are you worrying? If God is in control and everything's going to work out for His glory, whatever happens to you is for your benefit ultimately. Do not worry. The Christian should be continually renewing his or her mind by returning mentally to the decision to dedicate oneself to God. And by reaffirming that decision. Remember, this is a a step-by-step process. It's something that's going to take a long time to accomplish. And we never will on this earth. But this continual rededication to God will result in the transformation of the Christian into Christ's image. And isn't that what we desire to do? That should be our desire. Do you want to be like Christ? Do you want to be true representations of the word Christian? Then you will transform your life. Renewing your mind. From the pagan ways of this world into the renewed ways of Christ. Transform your thinking. And then understand the will of God. Understand the will of God. That is why this one aspect is why we read Ephesians chapter 5. Understand the will of God. Ultimately, our desire as Christians is to do the will of God. That should be our desire. Paul says that we can prove what the will of God is. And he gives us three terms to do so. Can you imagine, as a believer, that you have the opportunity to prove the will of God? But I don't know the will of God. Paul just says you can prove it. So how do you prove it? First, that which is good. That which is good. We know what is good when we have dedicated ourselves through the help of the Holy Spirit to the Word of God. You know what? We live in a world that has maligned this. They have attacked this. They have reinterpreted, redistributed, and re-understood this. But when we understand this literally, grammatically, historically, within its context, then we understand good. We understand what it means to be good. So when we're reading through the Word of God, do you know what God's will is and how it is good? Yes. If you are not spending time in the Word of God, do you know what is good? No, because you're being conformed to the world if you're not spending time in His Word. So good is spending time in God's Word. This is, this helps us to establish discernment. The ability to know what is good and godly and what is not good and godly. Well where is our, how do we base that? How do you walk outside, live in the sinful world around us, and understand what is good and what is not good? Because what is not good looks good and what is good looks bad, right? Ask yourself the next time you come roaring up onto somebody who's going 75 miles an hour down the interstate. See, the picture is, you need to get someplace. There's a truck in one lane and someone who's puttering along at 75 miles an hour, and you need to get someplace at 80 miles an hour, not 75. Ask yourself what is good at that moment. Because what is good looks bad in the world's view. Until you top that ridge and see the patrolman sitting in the bottom of the next valley. Right? And then all of a sudden the perspective changes. When you bring in an understanding of what the standard is, then all of a sudden the illustration changes. When you understand what the standard is in the Word of God, you will understand what is good. When you look at the world and say, well, everybody else is lying, they're cheating, whatever happens to be. You say, and look, they're getting the things that they want. That looks good to me. I know it's bad, but it looks good. And then you pull out the Word of God and it says that you should not do those things. And you say, you know what? Standard says I should not do those things. And so you abide by it. That is good. If you do not abide by it, that is being conformed to this world. Good, we know... What good is when we are able to establish discernment? And the only way to establish discernment is to go to the truth. And the truth is found only in the Word of God. What about acceptable? Acceptable. This means to, and we've already looked at this word earlier, this means that which we do is pleasing to God. Have you ever asked yourself in the middle of a sin, I wonder if this is really pleasing to God. Hopefully you learn to ask that before you get involved in the sin. I wonder if this is pleasing to God. If you can ask and answer that question without any twinges of guilt, that's probably okay. But if you spent time in the Word of God, you're discerning what is good, you're understanding what is not good and what is good, and you're recognizing that God has His best designs for you in His Word, then you're going to say, I'm going to do what is acceptable. A good test of living sacrificially is this question. Is the work that I do pleasing to the Lord? Is it pleasing to the Lord? Don't try to justify it. Just ask the question. We can spend all day justifying it. Don't justify it. Ask the question. Is what I'm doing pleasing to the Lord? If you do not have an immediate twinge of guilt, then you're probably okay. If you try to justify it in any way, you are not okay. You are not okay. Good. Acceptable. Last one's perfect. This means it cannot get any better. Perfect. Is the sacrifice you're offering qualifies perfect? Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. Is that perfect? Is your offering perfect? Cannot get any better. Given your limitations, your finite ability, it cannot get any better than it is at the present time. You see, dedication to God is a response to the mercy of God. That when we receive salvation, we understand the cost. The reality is, salvation is a free gift. Offered by grace. Blessings you did not deserve. Paid for by the mercies of God. Paid for by the removal of the consequences that you deserve. By his own sacrifice. Is salvation cheap? No. It's free to you. But it is not cheap. When you understand, let me put it this way. Someone gives you a thousand dollar gift. And someone gives you a $10 gift. There may have been a lot of thought in the, or in the $10 gift. But ultimately you recognize the value, the inherent value of the $1,000 gift. It may not mean as much personally, but you understand the value. When we look at salvation, we cannot pay for it. It is beyond anything you and I can achieve. And yet it was offered as a gift. Does that mean it was free? No. Free to you, not to the one who paid for it. You see, every Christian should understand that salvation is because of the mercy of God, by grace, through faith. It it therefore is our responsibility, not a requirement, but a gentle urging from the Apostle that we voluntarily commit That every action, every deed, every response we make is in loving submission to our Savior God as a living sacrifice. But it is not one that every Christian is going to make. Most Christians will not. It is possible to be a Christian without ever making this commitment because it is voluntary. But I'm asking you today to take that voluntary step. To be living sacrifices. To be holy and acceptable to God. That's reasonable of me to ask of you. But I'm a sinner. I understand. I understand the weight. Paul understood it. He says, I do what I do not want to do, but I do it anyway. Paul understood the commitment of being a living sacrifice. The issue before us today is, are you willing... Are you a willing, living sacrifice at the feet of the living God? Or are you easily swayed and pushed into the mold of the world by the changes of this sinful society? Paul's gentle urging of believers to be living sacrifices comes on the heels of the most significant theological chapters in all of the Word of God. And there is no more appropriate place for it to be than there. There is no question in my mind that the two, the significant theological passages and the request that you be living sacrifices are chiefly tied together. You will practice, or rather, will you practice real worship or will you practice superficial worship in a lifestyle that if it is based on anything less than good theology is superficial? So will you practice good worship, genuine worship, or superficial worship? However, if you have been equipped to establish a precious, rich, genuine worship, it will take work. There will be failures. But be transformed in the renewing of your mind. Be mindful of the richness of the gift that was given by the mercy of God, by the grace of God, and respond in a reasonable and rational manner. That's all Paul is asking us to do. Is respond to the truth. of the first 11 chapters. The reality is. Many of us in this room will not. Do this. But my prayer and my hope is. That you will eventually. That you will start today. That you will pursue this today. Failure to preach this. And to give it to you. The way Paul did. Is a major failure on my part. And I. I. I'm going to struggle along with you to live genuine worship, build living sacrifice lives. And I hope you'll take that challenge as well. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we bow our heads today before you, understanding that we have a tremendous opportunity that is being presented to us. As if a job offer has come in from the most prestigious and well-known company, granted to us, if only we will accept but we're not required to accept. Lord, we recognize that many will live their way they want to live, be conformed to the world on every other day but Sunday, somehow try to pop out of that conformity on Sunday just long enough to, to sit through the service and then to go home, watch a football game, and be conformed to the world again. For those, I pray that you would be working in their hearts and lives. For those who choose to be living sacrifices, we know it will be tough. We know that it will be extremely difficult when the pressures of the world seek to, to sway our decisions, to push us into the mold that they have designed for us. But I pray that we would transform our minds, renew our thinking, and be found as faithful, obedient servants of yours, as those living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to you, And as such that we would present our bodies for your service. To accomplish your work. And to be found faithful and obedient therein. Lord we want to maximize our relationship with you. And that is only because of the mercy that has been demonstrated to us. And we know that it will only remain because of the help of the Holy Spirit given to us as well. Lord I pray that these would not be lost upon us. And that we would be found faithful and obedient to what Paul is asking of us today. Lord, we love you and thank you for it. In your son's name we pray. Amen.